Good morning, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get into our Bible study for today. We're working through the book of First Corinthians, and being um, so near Easter, it's convenient and appropriate that we're currently in First Corinthians 15, where Paul kind of focuses on, in on and expounds on um, the consequences, the reality, uh, the doctrine of the resurrection. And so if you've got a Bible this morning, you're going to want to open it up to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. If you're visiting with us or if you didn't bring a Bible, you'll find one tucked right in front of a pew nearby um, that you are welcome to make use of. For the sake of context, before we read the passage together, Paul has just walked the Corinthian church through what they already know. In fact, he walks them through what he says that they have received because it's what he has received and passed on to them. He points to the tradition. He refers to it as the things of first importance, and then when he finally tells us what it is, he says it's that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again according to the scriptures. And then he goes through a roster of eyewitnesses of the risen Lord Jesus. And so he's laid this out, but it's really just to get where he's going. And to some degree, to be honest, we aren't going to get where he's going even this morning. Everything we're in in the midst of this morning is prep work. But what he's going to do is now start to address the place where the first or where the church in Corinth has gone astray. Um, if you've been with us and studied the letter to the Corinthian church, known as First Corinthians, it's a letter of correct, correction. Sometimes the Corinthians have questions. Sometimes they just plain have problems. But either way, Paul is trying to get them back on track. And for the most part, he's not telling them new things. He's showing that they've fallen away from old things. And he does the same thing this morning. We don't actually know exactly what was going on with the church in Corinth pertaining to the resurrection, but most likely it had to do uh, with the fact that in the Greek and Roman culture that the church was birthed into, in the world that Jesus came and lived and died in, um, the general philosophy of the world was very much controlled by the Greeks. And the Greeks saw the physical body as a negative, as a bad thing. They, they referred to it as a prison, and so they saw the end of your life or salvation or heaven or any of these things as being freed from the prison that is your body. Salvation for the soul, escape from the body. That was generally the way they saw things. So the idea that not only did Jesus come, die an actual physical death as God in the flesh, and be raised, but also that that means that what we expect is a bodily resurrection for ourselves, was a difficult doctrine for the early church in terms of receptivity with their neighbors. And so it may have been outside pressures going, come on, you honestly believe that a body like this with hands and a stomach and all of these things, that this has a future? You honestly believe that this is worth redeeming? It's probably that's the side that this is approaching from. And what Paul's going to do this morning is he's just going to say, okay, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our future resurrection go hand in hand. They're consequential. You deny one, you inherently deny the other. 
That's what's going on there, but why is it valuable to us to look at a passage like this? Okay. Well, for, for starters, even our culture today, even within the church, is very much shaped by Greek prepositions and understanding. Okay? In fact, when Martin Luther uh, brought about the Reformation, do you know what the primary philosophical worldview taught for pastors was? It was Aristotle. Aristotle, who predates Christianity, was the primary way they went about understanding their world. And so you'll often hear, even within the church, us talk about heaven as being this spiritual and unphysical reality. You'll hear us talk about the soul being saved and the body having no purpose. That is from this outside of the church tendency. So it's good for that reason, but it's good for another reason. I'm assuming this morning that each and every one of you is familiar with the synopsis of It's a Wonderful Life. I wouldn't be surprised if many of you have seen it. I don't know if you know the reason you've seen it. It's because of a legal battle that makes the rights really trippy, and so it's very easy to put on television. But even I, who have never seen it, generally know the plot of It's a Wonderful Life, right? So, so George, if I remember his name right, George wishes he'd never been born. And he gets a visit from an angel to, to grant his wish and walks him through what the world would be like without George, right? And so... Um, why? What's the value of that? Why does he take a tour? Why does he take such a detour? What is Clarence doing in taking George through this journey? Sometimes, in the words of Joni Mitchell, we don't know what we've got till it's gone, right? <laughs> and that's the reality. He can't see the meaning of his life unless he can see it without it. In the same way, that's what Paul is going to do this morning. He's going to say, you want to understand the importance of the resurrection? You want to understand why these things matter? Let's talk about life without it. Paul's going to be our Clarence, the guardian angel this morning, to say, let's walk through Christianity, let's walk through the world as we know it, let's walk through life, and let's just delete the resurrection. So with that being said, let's read it together. Starting this morning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage this morning, I pray that you would anchor more deeply the integral nature of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our hope in a resurrection for us. I pray that we would see that it's all woven of the same thread and to pull this loose is to unravel the whole. But I pray, Lord, that that wouldn't merely just help us to feel the weight and the risk and the precariousness of a world without Jesus' resurrection, but would also fill us with joy and strength, because in truth, Christ is alive. I pray that you would make these things known to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's pretty easy to see 
Paul's method here. I've already unpacked it with this illustration uh, from It's a Wonderful Life. Um, but can you see how he's just making a logical argument? It's just if-then statements. He just walks it out. And so he says in verse 12, Now as Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you, some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? As I mentioned earlier, we don't know exactly what was going on in the church of Corinth that prompts this question, but you get a pretty good feel for the boundaries of it. Some of the people in Corinth were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. Most likely, that meant as a future reality. Some scholars actually believe that they saw the resurrection of the dead as being what you just experience when you become a Christian. They had spiritualized it and basically said, this is it. This is the kingdom. This is the resurrection. This is already here. That's not actually a bad lens to understand all the craziness that we've already read about in the church because they're basically falling away from the constructs of normal life, saying, well, we're in the new age now. The old age doesn't matter. But it's more likely to me, because of where Paul goes in the rest of the chapter, where we'll be next week on Easter, where we'll be for a couple more weeks, it's more likely that it has something to do with this actual physicality of our hope in Jesus. That seems to be what's offensive. And so they were just flippantly saying, yeah, there's, no, there's not going to be a resurrection of the dead. And so he then says, first, how can you say that when that's the foundation, that's the beginning, that's the basis of Christianity, that Christ is risen? But then second, he says, let's just talk about the logical consequences of what you say. So what does he say in verse 13? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Okay? Logical if then. If resurrection isn't a thing then Jesus wasn't resurrected. He continues on here in verse uh, 13. Uh, he goes on, he says in 14, and if Christ has not been raised, and now he starts to get into the pocket of the consequences of what it looks like for this. So in other words, what he says this morning is, if you delete this reality of the resurrection to come, then Jesus was never resurrected. He says, let's talk about the consequences of such a belief. What does it mean if there's no resurrection for Jesus. Notice the first one on the list here. He says, first and foremost, our preaching is in vain. The word vain just means empty. Now, clearly here, Paul is talking about the fact that the message he proclaimed, you can go back and see this in verse 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 15, the message he proclaimed was Christ is risen. And so he's saying that's an empty proclamation if there's no such thing as a resurrection. It's an empty proclamation if it never actually happened. But I want to broaden it out for a second, and I want you to recognize that beyond that fact this morning, the purpose of preaching in general, what's happening right now as a reality in our church 2,000 years later, the phenomenon that has become, uh, been an integral part of Christian living, of the exposition and application of the Bible, what we call preaching. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's empty. Now, before I talk about why that's true from a biblical perspective, let's just talk about something different. Do you honestly believe that information changes lives? Now, it can go a distance. Ignorance is, is not bliss, hardly ever, and sometimes knowing something like the stove is hot makes life better, right? That's true, but when we talk about actual A to B change, when we talk about who we are versus who we should be, 
if we really thought that information would change us, wouldn't we have stopped writing self-help novels by now? Wouldn't we be to the point where there wasn't another one written? Why is there such a market for self-help? Because nobody's been helped yet, right? When we come here, it's not to get my wisdom. Most of you are, are, are you know, readily aware of that fact. Uh, it's not to get my opinion on things, nor is it just to provide us some sort of structure or program or ethical instruction to just give you a system for successful life. That's not how the New Testament sees preaching. It is the proclamation of a living Savior that gives power to the words that are proclaimed. When we come together as a church and we open the Bible, it's either to tell you who Jesus and therefore who God is, to tell you who we are and our need for Jesus, like Nick explained in our catechism, to point to uh, what it is that God has promised to do for us through Jesus Christ, or to explain where Jesus is taking us in his plan. That basically covers the gamut of preaching. All of it hinges on the fact that Jesus is real, that Jesus is alive, and that he is doing the work. Okay? When we come together and we proclaim what's going on, we're just pointing to reality. But if that reality is unreal, then it's unhelpful, it's empty. Many of you have been Christians long enough to actually have this experience. To be able to point to the A point in your life and the B point and know that somehow this book, somehow people speaking the word of God into your life, somehow that was a necessary component. If you're like me, you may even be able to point to occasions where it was full-blown revelatory. Where it was greater than the sum of its parts where it was a simple idea, but that idea burrowed so deeply into your heart and surprise, surprise, actually grew and blossomed and developed into actual change. Despite the advice that your parents gave you, despite all of the other ways you've tried to change, something here, you found, as the author of Hebrews says, that the word of God is living and powerful. I want you to think about that phrase for a second. He basically says this book is living and powerful. Living and active is a good translation of that word. Just, just to be honest, the way we talk about books doesn't generally include that language, right? We would re refer to this as an inanimate object, right? And the author of Hebrews says, no, it's living. Only if Jesus is alive. Only if it's his words. Only if the promises he made 2,000 years ago are still relevant because he's still keeping them. The second word he says, like I said, is often translated powerful. It's better active. When we have a relationship with a book that's an inanimate object, generally we are the active participant and the book is the passive participant. We read a book. But because Jesus is alive, because Jesus is resurrected, the book reads us. It's active in the relationship. We don't just read it, it speaks. Do you see the difference? But the only reason that's the case is because Jesus is alive. If there is no resurrection for Jesus, then preaching is an empty practice. It's just as empty as thumbing through another self-help book. It's just as empty as hearing another guru's opinion. He adds to that, not only is our preaching in vain, but he adds, and your faith is in vain. Now, once again, he's just being logical. If then. If our preaching is empty, so is your faith. Okay? 
But I want you to recognize, he'll come back to this idea. Right now, I just want you to recognize the, the fearful component in this. It's a story in the Old Testament, the story of Samson. Samson I like pointing to because he's not really that great of a guy. He's kind of a mess. Uh, at best, what he does for the Lord are college pranks. At best. Every one of them is selfish and self-oriented. Unlike the other judges from the book of Judges, he never leads an army. Everything is just about him. But where Samson draws his ability to be anything from is the fact that God has a destiny for him. And he's called him to be a Nazarite. So that destiny has outward markers, symbolic manifestations. So he's not supposed to cut his hair. He's not supposed to be around wine or any of the product of grapes. He's not supposed to be around dead bodies. There's a consecration, a sacredness to his calling. Now, he basically ignores all of that. He eats honey out of the corpse of a lion, which is not just a breaking of the sacredness. It's pretty gross, okay? Uh, he, he does all these things that don't live up to his calling, but the last line, the threshold where everything goes wrong is with his hair. He's living with a woman who's basically a prostitute, she knows he's got some secret to her power. She's being paid through the back door by her friends who are trying to get rid of Samson. And he lies to her at first, and then he gets a little close to the truth, and eventually he, she says, yeah, it's my hair. If I didn't have my hair, I'd be just as weak as any man. And so she shaves his head in the middle of the night. And what happens next, I think, is honestly one of the scariest sentences I've ever read in Scripture. It says that Samson went out, against his enemies, just as he had always done, but he did not know the spirit of the Lord was with him. Okay? That's like being in an awful neighborhood and thinking that you went out with your, with your vest on, your bulletproof vest, your Kevlar, thinking you're safe when actually you're not. When Paul says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is empty, that's what he's saying. You see, here's the thing about faith. Faith inherently is relational. You can have faith that the sun will come out tomorrow, that's fine, but that's not really faith. Faith is by definition relational, it's trust. It involves another person, okay? You remember those, um, what do we call them? Uh, those, I'll call them faith exercises, there's another name for them, those things that we do to get closer and trusting of our classmates or whatever, and so like there's the free fall where you close your eyes and fall backwards and hope someone catches you. When Paul says here your faith is empty, he means that the way you're currently living your life is not merely false, not merely a lie, but more dangerous because of it because you're putting all your weight on it and there's nothing there. You ever had that occasion where you go to sit down and the chair is not where you thought it was? Or when you're going up the stairs in the dark and you're pretty sure there's one more stair and you take that awkward step? That's what he means here when he says your faith is empty. The consequence of this is so much bigger than a missing stair or a missing chair. Okay? Now that's where he's going to go in a second, but that's what he means when he says your faith is vain, it's empty. You're leaning on air. He continues. Notice what he says next. He says in verse 15, we, meaning him and the other apostles, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. So what does he say here? He says, if there was no resurrection, then me, Peter, James, John, all of them, we're false witnesses. 
We've concocted this story. We've made it all up, okay? Now, that's relatively obvious as a statement. But he's saying more than just, we must have lied about the resurrection. He's not just saying, honestly, don't you believe me? Don't I have integrity? Aren't I a guy who tells the truth? Why wouldn't I tell the truth about that? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if we lied about this, don't trust us in anything. He's saying, he's saying there's two components here, a faithful witness and a false witness. He says, we've claimed to be representatives of God. If we claim that God raised Jesus and he didn't, we are not representatives of God. Basically, he says, false prophet or prophet, apostle or false apostle, those are the choices here. Now, I want you to recognize what that does to the New Testament in particular. Now, maybe some of you would be a bit relieved if you could deny the authority and the importance of the New Testament. There'd be certain passages that you'd rather not keep, that you'd rather not think about, and you'd go, well, I'd, I'd, I'd prefer not to think of this as apostolic in its authority, okay? And I understand that. I think that's the nature of being in a relationship with God. There's going to be disagreement, okay? Now, if you wise up as a Christian, if you start to learn to trust God's character, then you'll want him to win the argument, even if you're still arguing. Okay? But, but just recognize this morning, even if you're joining us this morning and you're not a Christian, recognize this morning that if you delete the resurrection, not only do you turn the New Testament into Swiss cheese, because it's really all they talk about, to the degree that Paul opens this letter and says, Corinthian church, when I came among you, I determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, that doesn't mean that's all he talked about. It means that everything he talked about eventually came to that point. That was the focal point of the whole discussion, okay? But as you look through the whole New Testament over and over again, go ahead, try, just pick a book and try and delete all the references to the resurrection. And not only will you make the physical book flimsy, the pages won't stay together anymore, but you also make all of the other exhortations and all, everything meaningless. But let me give you an illustration. Even in our culture today, for those who believe in God, it's common for them to say, I believe in a God of love. Where does that come from? What's the foundation of that? Is that something we just observe in the world that we live in? Of course not. In fact, the tension for many modern uh, Christians and modern God believers of broader categories is, how can there be a God of love if right? If there's starving people, if there's tsunamis, if there's horrible injustice. We struggle with that. So where does that idea come from? Is it what we observe just when we watch cre uh, creation? I know I quote Tennyson's poem all the time, but what do we see in nature? We see nature red and tooth and claw. We don't see love. It's the New Testament. It's one of these apostles, one of these ones who proclaims the resurrection, who says quite simply, this is the apostle of John, God is love. And if you remove the resurrection, you remove any validity for that statement. Because it was said by a man who proclaimed to people who died for it, who suffered, who were eaten by wild animals for the entertainment of others, Jesus is alive. What about the ethical instruction of Jesus? What about do unto others as you would have done unto you? And to be honest, that's not that uncommon of an ethical instruction. Confucius and Buddha both said similar things with one very primary difference. They said, 
don't do to others what you wouldn't want done to you, which is still good instruction for life. I'll add, just an aside, that if you look up the Ten Commandments of the Satanic Bible, that's number one. Okay? But Jesus did something different. He took that, he built on top of it, and he oriented it in the other direction, and he said, you should be seeking to do the things for others that you would want done unto yourself. He turned it the other direction. The golden rule is truly a Christian rule. But if Christ is not risen, in fact, listen, Buddhism recognizes a dead Siddhartha Gautama. It's not a problem. It's his teachings that matter. Islam recognizes a dead prophet Muhammad. That's not a problem. It's the teachings that matter. But if Christ is not risen, then the teaching is worthless. Because part of what Jesus taught was, I am more than merely a man. I am the difference between life and death. No one comes to the Father but through me. He proclaimed that he was the secret to salvation and eternal life. He pointed to himself and he said, I and the Father are one. Now that puts his ethical teaching in a little bit of a conundrum. Because either he is who he says he is and therefore is trustworthy in his teaching, or he is lying about who he is or crazy about who he is and therefore his teaching is irrelevant. So Paul says here, we're found to be false witnesses. Let me give one more illustration. Maybe the challenge you have with the church and with Christians is, is the reality of hypocrisy. That Christians say one thing and do another. That they hold people to a standard that they don't keep. That they pretend that they're better than everyone else, but on the inside they're just as bad. All I want you to recognize this morning is that that is a Christian tool. Jesus, in this concept of referring to outward religion with inward falsity, he's the one who took this phrase from the world of acting, the actor, the hypocrite, and put it in this language. Okay, That Christians become hypocrites is true, but the metric for recognizing that is an internal metric. But let's continue on. Notice what he says in verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Now, this word is a little bit different. Okay, when he says your faith is vain, he's talking about the content of your faith. It's empty. There's nothing there. Okay, you've got this chest, and you just think, okay, that's my security. It's got all of my money in it. When everything goes south, all I have to do is open the chest and I'll be taken care of. And when you open it, there's nothing there. That's what the first one means. But when he says your faith is futile here, he's talking about the consequence of your faith. He's talking about the productivity of your faith. He says it's unfruitful, it lays barren, it won't actually work. And today, in this world, that is a surprisingly important idea. Because many of us get caught believing that the faith is the productive element. That the object of faith is a little bit irrelevant. And this comes out in a lot of ways. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere, is a version of this. But so is this idea that what goes wrong in our life as Christians is that we don't have enough faith. I do not understand how we can ever accuse people who are having a hard time in life of that being the problem when Jesus said simply, 
if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, okay? Why can he say that that will move mountains? Why can he say that that will cast entire mulberry bushes into the sea? It's because the object of the faith is, is the important thing that matters. I use this illustration often, but just consider this. Imagine that you have a fear of bridges. Someday I'll take the time to look up what that fear is called, because I'm sure it has a name and it would improve my illustration. But imagine you have a fear of bridges and you're standing before the Golden Gate and your friend does not have a fear of bridges. It does not matter if he walks whistling across that bridge and you crawl, trembling the whole way. The bridge will hold you up either way. And the converse is true as well. Imagine that you have absolute faith that those MC Hammer Pants you had as a child will help you float when you jump off a building. It does not matter how great your faith is. Floating will not be the consequence because the pants are merely pants. Okay? Faith is never powerful in and of itself. And so if there's no resurrection, there is no resurrection for you. Not just in the final consequence of where we're expecting in life, we'll get to that in a second, but in the reality of the possibility of change. You see, the way the Bible describes the human condition problem is not merely a problem of ignorance. It's not merely a problem of effort. It's not merely a problem of having the right program or structure. There is something seriously wrong with us, something bent, something broken. And so it's not just that we will not keep the law, although that's true. Even if we wanted to, we can't. You've probably experienced this in your own life. You know personally well, or you know very well of people in your life who you love and who you care for, and you still can't treat them right. Every once in a while, you have that moment of clarity, and you say, I am not a good child to my parents. I am not a good husband to my spouse. I'm not a very good friend. And you make another vow to change. But tomorrow, you're still the self-same person you were yesterday. I think most of us, not just the drug addicts, most of us know that cycle. If there's no resurrection, then you are who you are. And it doesn't matter if it's your genetics or the way you were raised or the chemical imbalance from gluten food. It doesn't really matter what it is. That's determinant in your life. And you are shaped by the fate of other things outside yourself. The Bible actually agrees with that. In fact, it puts it further and it says, by nature you're a sinner and a sinner is all you will ever be unless Jesus is alive. Because then even out of death comes life. Then even out of darkness comes light. Even, what, the, what does the Bible say? In Jesus Christ, you are a new creation from scratch, built with better material, something different. The only reason Christians pursue ethical behavior at all is because we believe that God has made it possible in Jesus Christ. We really can change. But if there was no resurrection, if there is no resurrection of the dead, faith for faith's sake won't produce change. It can't. He continues on here. He says, second, and you are still in your sins. Now, we can look at this from two ways, and so we'll look at it from both ways. First off is the fact that without the resurrection of Jesus of Christ, there is no forgiveness of sins. When he says here, when he says here you are still in your sins, the baseline meaning of that is that you're still on the hook. 
that your guilt still exists. And you say, well, wasn't Jesus's willing and loving death enough? Does there really have to be a resurrection? Does it really have to be a bodily resurrection for this to be the case? Yes, for a couple of reasons, okay? One, simply put, the resurrection is the receipt to the transaction of the cross. It's how we know that the purchase was made. Anyone in this world can raise their hand and say, I will die for your sins. But how will we know that it's been accomplished? The resurrection is the evidence of that. It's the proof that not only was Jesus incapable of being held by death because he was completely without sin, but also it's the evidence that his death on our behalf fulfilled its purpose. We know we are forgiven not because we try harder as Christians, not because we finally got our act in order, not because we've recognized our own sinfulness and confessed it. We are forgiven as Christians because it is finished and it has been paid in Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, you are still in your sins. But more than that, as I mentioned just a moment ago when talking about the futility of faith without the resurrection, you are still in your sins as in you are still chained to determined by, stuck as a sinner. But he goes on, he continues. He says in verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He says, without the resurrection, it changes the way we mourn as Christians. It changes the way we look at a funeral. He says, even if they've fallen asleep in Christ, even if they've died as Christians, then they've perished. Then it's over. Listen, our culture is very common, commonly speaking things in the memorial setting of so-and-so's in a better place, and there are much worse, uh, worse versions of it. And I want you to recognize that's not actually about the other person. We don't say those things about them. We say it about us. Sometimes we say it to keep that pain at a distance because it just closes the conversation. We don't have to think of the big question and the darkness of death or even our personal loss and not being able to see this person all the time. And so we just smooth it over with a, with a truism, with a platitude. But even when we say it in other places, we say it to make us feel better. I, I mean, I'm just going to take this morning that, that that's self-evident, that it doesn't mean anything to the dead. Whatever death as a state is. They're not like, oh, it's neat that they think that. That's sweet, right? We say it for us, okay? Now, there's, a, of course, an inherent flaw in, in that reality. It's, it's refusing to look at the reality of death. But even for us as Christians, there is no heaven. There is no salvation. There is no afterlife. There is no nothing except death because that's all there's ever been. When Jesus comes back from the dead, he becomes the sole eyewitness of a reality that all of us will experience and none of us have been able to share about. But our hope, our hope to see people again, our hope that they're in, quote, a better place, our hope is grounded on the fact that one time there was a man who died and is alive again. And so we know as well that in our death, that death is not permanent. It's merely sleep. We awake 
in the presence of the Lord. And one day, we, like Jesus, will be raised with a fresh body, without all of the asterisks, without all of the side effects, to the full totality of what God designed human beings to be. I have to be honest, this year that weighs on me a little bit more heavily. Alan, our deacon here who passed away earlier, you should hear it with the weight of that. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sin, and then Alan who has fallen asleep in Christ has perished. The resurrection past and future is our hope. It's also the only thing that makes right the wrongs of this universe. Because death isn't as it should be. It's not just a normal part of nature. It's not part of the circle of life. Sorry, Disney. It's not what God intended. It's a consequence of rebellion. It's a consequence that God is laid his own life on the line to fix. But if there's no resurrection of Jesus, then there's no hope in death. He doesn't stop there. He says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's talked about hope for the next life. Now he talks about hope in this life. And he says, if Christ is our only hope in this life, then we should be pitied by all men. Why? Because what did Jesus say the best life looks like? He said it looks a lot like death. What did he call us to as Christians? To take up our cross and follow him. The Christian life, by definition, in big and in small, is a suicide mission with the hope that there's something on the other side. The entire ethic of Christianity is to stop serving self now, to love others now, to be focused on others, to die to ourselves, to take the things that we enjoy that are sinful and allow them to be crucified and removed because we believe there's something better. And I'll remind you that just beginning in these days, you may remember it was referred to in chapter 17, persecution of Christians is becoming a thing. And within 40 years of this, Christians are going to be put to death because of their beliefs, because of their refusal to call Caesar Lord when Jesus is Lord. All of those choices are made because Christ is risen. Anytime God calls you to deny yourself, to take up your cross, that's only valuable. It's only, well, it's not enjoyable at all, but it's only fruitful if there's resurrection. And so this is what he's saying. He's saying, look, if the only hope you have in, in life is Jesus Christ, if the resurrection is what you're leaning, it's you, all the chips on red 17 the resurrection okay it doesn't matter how the game goes if it's not red 17 it's lost it's wasted even even the aesthetic reality of life that no matter what happens when you die that tasty cheeseburger was tasty all of that for a christian is removed in its value in its worth because we are intentionally orienting our life in a different direction we're sacrificing those things for something greater. Here's the point. 
If Jesus is not alive, we're damned. Not just tomorrow, today. But, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Think of all the things that we've just talked about and what that means. It means that there is the possibility, the reality, the potential for change in your life. That you are not stuck who you are. That God really can use and change and grow a person like you because he's going to do it through the self-same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Ephesians chapter 2. Think of the fact that that means that not only is your faith not empty, but it will be productive. That you're putting your trust in someone trustworthy who keeps his promises to the degree that even as he said all the way back in the Psalms, my soul will not see corruption, my body will not see Sheol, and so it was, because God is faithful. It means that one day we will embrace Alan again means that one day we will stand on the other side of death, conquering the greatest tyrant of human history. It means that the beauty of the Bible where we see it and the hard things in the Bible we can stake our life on because they're from the mouth of trustworthy and called and appointed apostles. It means that anything you risk in this life, every, anything you surrender, anything the world says makes life valuable that you give up for something greater is an investment that will pay off. Paul knew a little bit about this. It'll be a while till we get into 2 Corinthians, but when we do, he's going to make a list of what life is like for him as a Christian. And at the end of it, he's going to say this, look, I've determined that the sufferings of this life aren't even worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come. But I want to finish here. Notice what he says. He says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Do you see that word, first fruits? Okay. Now, we're not an agricultural society, so let me explain what that means. The first fruits is the early crop. It's a reminder and a first taste of what the rest of the crop is going to be. Okay. When he applies it to Jesus here, he does something that I think is really interesting. Because in general, how do we see the resurrection of Jesus as tremendously unique? as one of a kind. And there's a fact where that's totally true. It had never happened before, and until the end of the world, it will never happen again in the way it happened in Jesus. But when he calls it a first fruits here, he's connecting what happened in Jesus and what will happen for us. He's saying that's just the foretaste. That's why in Colossians it calls Jesus the firstborn of many children, of which you are part of that family, are part of that destiny. As an early church father I read last night, he said, if the head has been raised, so will be the body. Jesus is the first fruits. It's the evidence of the harvest that is to come into our lives and in our eternal destiny. And, and it is the reason. It is the reason why those things will be the case. concept of the resurrection, whether ours in the future bodily or Jesus's in the past, is not a secondary concept of Christianity. It is the core. It is the heart. It is the center. If Jesus is dead, there is no Christianity. There are no Christians. 
there's just a big, big, terrible misunderstanding. But if Jesus is alive, there is hope. There is life. There is change. There is something that we can stake our lives on and never be disappointed. And we're one week early, but the early church used to proclaim on Easter, he is risen, and then people would respond, he is risen indeed. So let's do that, and then we'll pray. He is risen. risen Father, I don't believe the Corinthian church were heretics trying to dismantle their faith. They were just led astray from the focal point. They misunderstood. And I know that we're the same way, Lord, that we can, we can say with our hand raised in the air as we sing our songs or even uh, in solemnly swearing, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But do we believe everything that comes with that? Do, be- do we believe that that's merely the first fruits? Do we believe that change is possible? That hope is available? That death is an enemy, yes, but he has been stripped of his sting. He has been robbed of his teeth. And for us, it's merely sleep. Do we believe that we have the faithful and true proclamation of God? Because these are the living and powerful words of Jesus Christ. Do we put all our chips on red 17? pray, Lord, that we would see that those are the natural, logical consequences. Because Christ is risen, our faith is solid, and it is fruitful. Because Christ is risen, we are of all people to be most envied, because he, the God of the universe, died for us, freely and willingly took the penalty that we deserved bore the entire cost of it and said, come, not only be forgiven, but be my children. Come, not only be stripped of your sin nature, but imbued with my nature by the Holy Spirit. Come, be what I've destined you to be. I pray as we worship this morning that our rejoicing would have the flavor of fact that our praise would have the reality of the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.